Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. Shazad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Ayushi Kachara. Ayushi has previously worked for Niva and currently works for Golder Associates in New Zealand. She has been in the field of air quality for over 5 years working with and for regional councils and transport agencies reviewing monitoring networks, developing air quality indicators, improving indoor air quality in residential buildings and reviewing impacts of climate change on air quality. Ayushi's focus on the field of air quality has been in linking environmental science with data science algorithms to improve the overall outcome of mitigation strategies and tackle air pollution issues. Our guest is a professor of environmental science and the dean of the School of Natural and Physical Science at the University of Papua New Guinea. His research and experiences include climate change, atmospheric science, coastal management and planning, implementation of multilateral environmental agreements, disaster management, and more. He works closely with governments, communities, private sector, and various international organizations towards local capacity building and developing climate change adaptation strategies. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Professor Chalapan Kaluwen. Welcome to the show, Chalapan and Ayushi. Thank you, Shazad. And thank you so much, Professor Chalapan, for joining us today. I'm very excited, like Shazad, for this discussion. Let us start with discussing the climate of Papua New Guinea. We are seeing the effects of climate change with prolonged dry spells, bushfires, floods, and other climate extremes more often now than observed in the past on a global level. Could you start with telling us the current climate of Papua New Guinea and what the future climate indications are for the country? Thank you so much for asking me to start about PNG. Papua New Guinea climate uh, uh, issues here. My experience on a fair bit of this is looking at the climate change issues right across the Pacific. And so I have a fairly good understanding of what the changes are happening here with climate variability, climate change, sea level rise issues in, in relation to how atmospheric does affect the various parts from Australia all the way down to New Zealand and this part of the world. And so a fair bit of the issues on Climate change or climate variability, as I, I'll put it to you, is the defining what climate change is all about in this part of the world. For Papua New Guinea, we have, if you talk about the climate variability, it's always been this issue between the countries here. But for Papua New Guinea, we have, depending on which part of the island you're in, remember, we are a little bit bigger than most as, as a country. So we, we get quite a fair bit on different changes. Like if you don't know that, it does snow up in Papua New Guinea up in the hills of Mount William. And so the changes from down the coast all the way up to the hills, it's different. So we have, in relation to the cold bits, the cold climate is run about come May to July, July, September. It's cold in this part of the world, very cold. And so then the rest of the time is, you can get dry spell from November all the way to April. And that's the kind of, the two kind of weathers around this part of the world. For Papua New Guinea and so on, in relation to being closer to Australia, and so on, we have a lot of influence from land from Australia across this side of the world. Sitting in the Pacific Ocean, the various types of climate variability that occurs and influence our climate is, the, the main ones are this, we, we believe there is a big, the biggest warming, the warm pool of the ocean in the world is sitting in Papua New Guinea. 
And that influenced a lot of the climate variability from El Nino that goes all the way from our side of the world right across to South America, and then it comes back along the side, and most times it comes across to La Nina and moves across to Papua New Guinea. So those are some of the climate variability we see in this. Over this number of years, when we're coming across here in the last 30, 50 years, we've seen that El Nino or climate variability, El Nino has been always a signal that we see it once every 10 years. Now we're picking it up that it's becoming like every two to three years in our part of the world, and I can speak for the Pacific, every two to three years we see El Nino being one of the biggest signals here in our part of the world. So when you get more rain in different parts of the Pacific, like Solomon Islands, down to Vanuatu, to Papua New Guinea, we tend to pick up a lot of this, the changes between about November till around about May, April, that's when we get, you know, more rains around this side of the world. And that's due to what we call the warming and El Nino shifting between one side to another. We have one of the biggest climate drivers is called the Southern Pacific Convent Zones. And that's something that picks up as far as FSM and comes through Papua New Guinea, Tuvalu and all those islands and hits us as well. And so that's an influence on this. The Northern Pacific Convent Zones, it's another one that comes across our side as well. For, you know, both of them hits both Papua New Guinea and Fiji and so on. So those are the climate variabilities that I call the Southern Pacific Convent Zones that influence us. The biggest influence on this is the warm pool. We call it still here. But we think because of the, the change of the greenhouse effect right across the world, the ocean tends to absorb a fair bit of this. When I make reference to the ocean as some of the biggest thing, the absorption, if you go and talk about certain absorption of greenhouse gas in the Pacific, we know that carbon dioxide because of the issues on you know the energy we don't produce a lot but we're coming across to for Papua New Guinea we're getting quite a fair bit on the emissions out of LNG that's natural gas including methane from the mining and so on and so forth so as an island or country LNG is one of those biggest emissions issues that's in in our part of the world and the warming of the ocean since 1991 we've been doing this work and studying in this part of the world we find that the warming is still the biggest influence in our side. And when we talked about the kind of atmospheric pollutants and the kind of issues around the world, we find that within the part of the world, we are naturally the biggest absorbers on the energy as aspect in here. So it's both global warming because of the greenhouse effect, the climate variability issues, and the volcano within our part of the world is very active as well. That produced a fair bit of the cooling of our side here as well. And so various volcanic activities in our part of the world, say within our country, and as far as up to Philippines and so on, it tends to influence us a fair bit. I think you probably realized that in 1995, we had a cooling effect because of the Philippines a volcano that came across. And then in our part of the world, we have had at least three or four big volcanoes within, our, within Papua New Guinea. There's a little bit on cooling within our side of the world. And so these do affect the climate variability and climate change in our part of the world here. And you don't see this here, but being in the local side of our island, or our country, it does influence the climate as much as the offshore wind, the onshore wind that comes across and gets up as far as up to the highlands of Papua New Guinea, like I was telling you. The highest mountain in Papua New Guinea is close to about 14,000 feet. And it does form ice up there, or snow. Within the island itself, from the biggest island all the way down the coast in Papua New Guinea, we have those climate change or climate variability that's quite significant that affects our water resources in all these you know, communities. Again, as a country, we have about just under 9 million people. 
And most of those people who live along the coast of this country, they live up in the highlands. And the influence of climate and climate variability and the cloud formation sitting in this island is quite significant because once you get a fair bit of off- offshore and onshore winds, you get cloud formation up there. This is some of the things that we've been doing some work with WMO, World Meteorology Organization, which we come to associate with the warm pool sitting in the ocean here in this part of the world because the cloud formation is sitting. As we get more climate change influence in our islands, we find it does influence our climate big time. Like right now, as I speak to you, we're in an area that it's basically this period that it's actually being dried, closely linked to the Australian weather as well. And so most of the people along the coast as close as Gulf in Papua New Guinea, next door to Australia, across to the main island, we're still having dry spell here. And so agriculture is one of those challenges we have having across, and it does influence a fair bit on water in our part of the world. We're looking at hopefully it does rain run about October, November. Hopefully it you know, comes back again, all because of this southern oscillation and some of this La Nino, La Nina movement as they influence the climate here. In relation to doing monitoring and so on, yes, we have quite a fair bit on monitoring with our partners in here. We deal with the French uh, group that comes from what they call IDEA, Institute of Research Development. They're doing quite a fair bit of research between New Caledonia as far as up to Papua New Guinea, tracking the climate that comes as far as this side. And then we have the, with the work that we do with the NOAA guys, National Oceans and Atmospheric. We've been working with them since 1991. So we have a fairly good understanding on what the, the monitoring is on and going on. For the last, since the last 25, 30 years, under the ocean, we're picking up a little change, around about four degrees change in the ocean. And that's quite significant in relation to climate change. It does provide some heads up in relation to developing responses like adaptation or mitigation options in this part of the world in addressing climate change. But it's still the challenge between dealing with both climate variability and the challenge of climate change coming to affect the oceans and affect the, you know, the weather patterns both in some of the Pacific Islands north, 10 to 20 degrees south of the equator and 10 to, to 20 degrees north of the equator. And that has a lot of influence in relation to climate change and the atmospheric issues that we're dealing with. As it's a fair bit to do with the warming issues. And that's where we pick up the temperatures around our part of the world. We have quite a fair bit of our extensive um, med service meteorological data that we collect around our island. And we have about 650 islands around our island. That's a lot of island with, in terms of monitoring. There's some of the data that we're collecting up to now as I speak speak to you we have this be able to forecast and looking at uh, you know the kind of work that it's being done here both as a research and both as capacity building and talking to supporting our own people in relation to the challenge of climate change and especially dealing with atmospheric sciences here i mentioned atmospheric because that's a fair bit on what we're having here from the pollution in our part of the world we are the biggest country that produce a fair bit on LNG, that's natural liquid gas, oil here in our island. The last two LNG companies we have here, both of them are producing close to 28 million tons every year of methane in our island. And that's the kind of emission that's, it's been used in our energy sector and majority is sold to other countries as well. I think we are looking at the potential for others as well, but this gives you the kind of scope, the kind of activities in our part of the world for Climate change on those areas and, you know, oil and coal, is those are potential here that's sitting in. We've identified coal as some of the energy source here. And I think there's some of the 
issues on atmospheric pollution in, that affects a number of the provinces that we have here. That it's just about to talk about harvesting coal as an important energy sector here. But those are within the political agenda or the economic agenda of the of the country. It's quite significant the impacts there. We're facing some here in New Zealand as well. I wonder what the level of awareness is in Papua New Guinea about these worsening threats and their knowledge to sustain and adapt to these changes on an everyday basis. And how does this compare with global awareness about the impacts of climate change on the Pacific Islands? Let me get you to this, this issues about this. This is started in the 1990 times when we were looking at this issues about sea level and climate change for the Pacific in the kind of thing that most of the islands, in relation to using NIWA, helping us to look for data in the Pacific. Most of the Pacific Island countries didn't have a lot of the weather office to do this kind of work. And so when we increased the network on understanding this, this is in the early 80s, sorry, 86 up to 90s, when they increased the monitoring stations, it gave them a little bit more breath and width about understanding the climate variability, including sea level. So we were able to pull up all this information from NIWA, National Institute for Weather and Atmospheric from New Zealand, and from the Bureau of Meteorology and other institutions in the country, including all the weather office in the countries. So I was able to be the technical, you know, advisor to the Pacific Islands. I was able to pull this up with a number of institutions, in, including the French countries, to support the understanding of the climate issues in the Pacific. And so when you talk about this, it's taken a little bit of time, but I want to emphasize this, that the data and information that collected since that time, right from 90, up to now, it's becoming so meaningful now that governments are actually supporting it. We have a forum leaders meeting, all the countries around the Pacific, including New Zealand, Australia. There's about at least 20 of them right across. That include U.S., Australian government, New Zealand, and the Pacific Island countries. They come across every year just to talk about this issue. At the forum leaders, they have that kind of meeting at the political ground. Within the island countries, every one of them have policies on both the science of climate change, understanding climate, the adaptation policies that's now within the countries themselves, the mitigation, they call it the response, the impacts, a response to some of this. And this is something that it's quite exciting to look at most of these countries who have actually developed policies to address the issues of climate variability coupled with climate change. And then the sea level rise issue is now becoming quite an exciting thing in terms of uh, looking for laws around here. The UNCLOS, they call it the, you know, the UN law of the sea, the Paris Agreement, they have taken it on because it started from that in the 1992 when most of the countries developed their own policies. Majority of them, they developed their own policies and looked at issues like this in the area of adaptation and the areas of mitigation. And so they've come across with this. And the most important is to upkeep the information that they collect every year out of their own backyard, because there's always been one of those challenges on this. But to be upfront for Papua New Guinea, we have policies here that's done by the government. They embrace this. They've set up what they call a climate change ministry here and including the weather office and so on. And so it's quite an important thing for Papua New Guinea. We've got a climate change ministry linked to environment and we have the weather office sitting in with it. And so a lot of this work that Papua New Guinea government is looking at is because it started from the leaders in 1990, 91. They started from this issue and it's now quite important to get countries, especially small island countries, to start pulling this up. And so that's how the influence came about when we were working with it to make sure that a lot of these countries, as far as the Caribbeans, joined with us including the Indian continent like Maldives and Singapore. So they joined us to talk about this issue as a, as a group. And hence, you'll find that at the international level, 
a lot of this information that comes from the Pacific. We've collated it, we pull it together. And so it becomes part of those addressing issues at national level, at the community levels. And at the same time, we've taken the issues further up to the international scene. I make reference to the Paris Agreement. We influence a fair bit in the Paris Agreement, talking about adaptation, talking about our forestry, talking about financing, like looking at uh, emission trading, looking at migration issues on some of this in the Pacific, and then looking at financing. I think that's one of the things. How do you support countries if they're impacted by sea level and climate change right across these islands as well? I'm excited because of these small island countries have got now some capacity in a lot of these small island countries in the Pacific, like Tuvalu, Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Palau, including Fiji, Samoa, Niue, those little island countries have now got a fair bit of support from both the developed partners and the developing partners, including, you know, international financing groups that have supported some of these policies going across. And so those are kind of evidence I can give it to you. But a fair bit of this is starts from understanding the atmospheric science first. And that's basically why we've actually come from that side to look at the, the atmospheric issues or pollutions in regard to such things as El Nino and so and so on. That's influencing this part of the region as some of the biggest impact on these islands. And would you say that there is awareness amongst the people of these issues and willingness to adapt? There is a fair bit on adaptation here. This is no doubt, you know, like I said, a fair bit in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and so on, the Malaysian countries. There's willingness to adapt. This climate change, if it wasn't on the awareness, a lot of people wouldn't have understood these climate change issues or the atmospheric issues across here. Now, a lot of the countries in the Pacific here, a fair bit of them understand this pretty well. If you walk to a small island countries like Tuvalu in Papua New Guinea, everybody starts talking about climate change. We have allowed the schools to actually take the curriculum of climate change. We have developed quite a fair bit for them, and we've taken it all the way to primary school and high school to take it across, to teach kids that climate change is here to stay, or climate variability and so on. We have about 26 provinces in this country. The awareness is actually big time. We've used schools in the education from primary school, high school, and now it's at the university level. Where I speak to you now, we have a degree on what they call comprehensive hazard and risk management. We've taken climate change as one of the big key issues in relation to looking at the various disasters in our part of the world. So we have a degree program that we've been able to take it across. We have a sustainable development degree program in the country, and then we have various degrees that support at the university level. That's why we're excited to support our own leaders in various parts, but it starts as what I call it the bottom-up approach. Our high schools and primary schools have taken on this curriculum to talk on these issues seriously because they can see the impact of it. And some of these little islands, like I told you this, we have about 650 little islands. And 90% of these islands actually have been taken up by people who live on those coastal islands. And the challenge about making sure that they understand this is still a challenge. But I think when I look at this issue, I think we have to start with our own people, our own children people who understand or don't understand, but at least to drive this issue to them to understand basis for this. A lot of these communities understand the changes, like they relate it to the movement of the sun. You go to some of these islands, they'll tell you that the sun is moved and therefore you'd expect strong winds to come. Those are traditional knowledge by looking at the sun back to their own place where they stand. So there's some excitement in terms of looking at the science that you know and the traditional knowledge you know, so how do you integrate it? 
And that's becoming quite useful in dealing with these issues for climate change, climate variability, and sea level rise issues to supporting our own Pacific countries, and in this case for Papua New Guinea, making sure the leaders understand this. So that's quite exciting for us because in our, in our vision here in Papua New Guinea, climate change and environment are two big important pillars here. For 2050, we have one that's going down this line that puts climate change and environment uh, sustainability as one of our big, biggest pillars in this country. That sounds quite encouraging. I also, I feel like I should go back in time and attend that school where I taught about climate change. Um, I also wanted to touch about the impacts on agriculture and marine resources, um, along with the LNG, oil and gas productions um, that you mentioned before. How would you say that the impacts of climate change would affect the economy, which depends on these resources. And what are some of the innovations or the climate smart technologies that people have adapted to overcome these? Both in terms of um, areas of the sectors you've talked about, energy and some of the agricultural sectors, it's an important area. It's a, it's a challenge in about shifting from seeing Climate change has come true with atmospheric. And then when you look at some of this energy sector, and then you look at how does it impact on communities in this part of the world? And that goes all the way down to Samoa and so on. And that's the challenge here we're talking about. We find that uh, working with countries like Fiji and so on, we've actually allowed them to look at areas on agriculture. And this is quite an important area for the Pacific Islands, including Papua New Guinea. Agriculture is an important sector. And when you look at the emissions coming out for, say, for Papua New Guinea, there's two LNG sites here, and they're producing methane. We're talking about close to 30 million tons every year that we produce as part of our greenhouse emissions that we have to track them. We look at our industries here too, both in industrial sites as a big country here. We find that that's the emission. And then you look at the forestry. That's slashing and burning of our forests is quite significant. Third largest forestry country in the world is Papua New Guinea. We're still doing the same thing here. We're burning a lot of our forests here during that period. Exporting our log is quite an interesting approach that we're doing for this. When you go to agriculture, here is one that we've gone across looking at the various types of food and so on. We've taken innovative ideas like when we looked at coal, for example. There's one province that's trying to take coal from Gulf area to take it to Morabi province. And that they're trying to do a power station and develop it there. The only problem here with that thing our advice to our government here is if you take coal to, it's a province called Morabi province, it rains a lot. And it's within that period here that it rains in this part of there. 90% of rain falls in this province. And they're trying to build this coal station in there. We know that from experience both in Australia and elsewhere, Australia produces a lot of coal, like in South Australia. When I was working across there, looking at the coal power station, we find that quite a fair bit of sulfur dioxide was released there. And so the kind of experience we did in South Australia as an example, you can actually duplicate it to a little island like Papua New Guinea, getting coal from there and it's here. So it's a lesson from Australia that we know of that sulfur dioxide has actually come and converted to acid rain. That we picked it up from both in England. That's something that I did it both in as my PhD studies in England. We studied sulfur dioxide as part of acid rain and we're picking up in Australia. And so in Papua New Guinea, we're trying to provide that direction to our government in relation to Whatever you do, stay away from coal for a while. But look at renewable power like solar, for example. We've gone across to develop solar technology here in this part because solar is now becoming one of those energy areas of responding to climate change. And we're looking at that area. And then we're looking at, looking at our currents. We find there's two areas here. The, they're close to more than a million gigawatts coming out from Millen Bay. 
that's the currently so so fast, one of the fastest at Kronso, we're looking at that area plus another site here in, in Papua New Guinea. Two sites that we're looking at turning that energy in the ocean to drive power in Milim Bay province and so on. The lessons from places like in France and so on, they're using the tide. That's the kind of lessons we have taken across to small island states and developing it. So solar is an important one that we've taken it to small islands because it's affordable for a lot of these countries. In our country here, we've taken solar. We've gone to all the way to China to look at some of the technologies we've got. And it's about now three, four years now, we've worked with Chinese government to give us some of the technologies that they've done and we're modifying it. But in terms of solar, it's quite an important one. We're looking at both Australia and taking lessons from New Zealand. We've encouraged New Zealand to take it to Niuei and install this, you know, the solar energy across to Niuei. It's quite a significant amount of power on that island in Niuei next to New Zealand. So we are doing the same thing in Papua New Guinea in terms of creating solar power here. Within the universities I'm sitting on, we're looking at that kind of opportunity in the capacity of energy. We worked with various donors, like Chinese government has allowed us to develop technology here. And from Australia as well, we've worked with the Australian government to give us a certain capacity here to deal with those in our part of the world. To try and apply it with this, we've actually applied solar into cleaning rice and to look at different crops here as well. And so those are some of the important aspects of not dealing with wood, but taking the sun and converting it to various communities to have lights across. Within the mitigation policy here, the renewable energy policy for this country, we've actually helped develop the renewable energy policy for this country. And some of them are looking at hydro schemes, that we have enough water here in this country, and solar is one of them. And then looking at probably LNG here, that is quite useful. And then the other ones are looking at the oceans here in our part of the world to tap on the ocean currents and tides that's coming here in this part of the world that we've applied it here. And so, one, we have a policy that's renewable energy. The other thing, we have the climate change. Now we're looking at how do you respond to the Paris Agreement in looking at the various adaptation and mitigation options here. Yeah, that's quite interesting. You have been involved in developing some regional policies, and currently you're working towards making these applicable also at village level. What is the importance of taking it to that high resolution and doing it at village level as well? Some of these are guided by, you know, our energy policies. You can have a fantastic policy, except if you don't drive it and from institutions like whether it's government institution or private institution or NGO. There's policies here, but the issue of supporting communities here, for Papua New Guinea, we have about just under 9 million people. And 80% of them basically own the land and the resources issue in the, within themselves. And half of them, education is not one of those exciting things in this part of the world. And so taking this kind of ideas and walking back to our own community, to me, is very exciting because it's the way we, we brought up and the way we want to look about it's a bottom-up approach. And that's the kind of thing you find that some NGOs globally, like IUCN, the Greenpeace and all of those, they're using that kind of approach to deal with communities because of the ability to help communities, not because of anything, because of it's a, it's a capacity issue. You start this bottom-up up approach, you go home, you go to your communities and you develop this. Currently, these are some kind of strategies we're taking it home to communities first. And institutions like us in the university, our technical institutions, our, you know, the energy sectors as well, both agriculture and forestry, they're taking the step back about because within what we have, we always believe that going back home and helping the communities is far more important. It's more rewarding because you want to improve the livelihood of all these communities that if you have a change, 
it starts from the communities. And I think that's basically the way we have strategized this to go into understanding the big science and converting that big science into its application at home. It's quite exciting, challenging, but rewarding. Like you said it, it's challenging and rewarding. That's brilliant. I just have one last question. Climate change is an urgent issue globally, and even more so for you locally. You've been leading the climate change policy work for decades in a region for which climate change is an existential threat. What are some of the challenges that you faced and had to overcome in your journey of transforming scientific knowledge into policy? One of my greatest challenges, because uh, you know most of the Pacific Islanders, including Papua New Guinea, coming to know about this issue when you talk about atmospheric science and when you talk about that knowledge at a level, one of mine is to actually trying to get our leaders in. It's nothing new. Around the world, including Australia and New Zealand, if your leaders understand a little bit on science, it's easier. If your leaders, like in certain parts of the world, they just ignore the science data information, nobody's going to make anything move. We find this quite interesting here. Will your leaders listen to a scientific advice and from his own people, or do they wait for outsiders to come in? And that's, to me, that's always been the challenging thing to move around the Pacific, trying to get, educate our own people about it does work, or it's a policy issue. It will affect your sea level in Kiribati or Tuvalu and in Papua New Guinea, because in the next 40 or 50 years, our trend in the Pacific, we know that we're looking at eight millimeters of sea level, for example, just to give you a heads up. Since 1990, when we started this work, a lot monitoring the ocean, we understand that the sea level is rising in our region. And so trying to educate our people here in our place in terms of politics, they would like to hear that one because it's a disaster issue and how do you get donors in? But for people to stay on their home, that information is critical. And that's my challenge here in relation to educating our leaders, making sure they understand this. And when you talk about resourcing, supporting the kind of programs they're doing back at home, whether it's in the agriculture sector, in the forestry sector, in the housing, in the coastal areas, where it's fisheries and so on. We're finding it a little challenging, but when some of this information comes across, it's exciting because you're now educating our own people to understand that if they support this kind of thinking and the kind of work that we've been doing, it goes a long way. But like I said, my challenge is basically speaking to the leaders, making sure that they understand this, you know, the scientific. And when people like us go across, you're still having a big tussle there. And that's why I'm talking about climate change is a long shot. You talk about a couple of 50 to 100 years later. And hopefully we have answers to this. And that's why our strategy or my strategy in relation to going to all these little island countries and supporting them, including trying to get New Zealand to understand this is quite important. Because when we were talking to the New Zealand prime minister, She's not supporting us because she said climate change is still the biggest thing. That's something. With the Australian government, it's the same thing. So issues about the forum leaders within this and the work that people like us provide advice to our government, to me, that's the biggest challenge. And I enjoy the little bit of challenge, trying to get the science that you know or we know and educating our leaders to listen to this information that we've collected all our lives. And we're trying to make sure that our policies and the application of our policies mean something to our people in the future generations. And when we start thinking of this, you get the UN to start thinking about this issue as well, because you have to do it with, at home. And then if you apply it to the 17 the UN Sustainable Development Goals, those to me are global framework. The application of this, when the UN went across and talked about sustainable development in 2030, how does countries like, in my own case, in Papua New Guinea, how do you respond to that? 
the most important is you make sure you know your facts in your own backyard. If you understand those information, whether it's on atmospheric, and that to me is exciting when it's in the ocean, and it's on terrestrial boundaries that you're looking at, those are important information that address climate change, but they address your laws and they address your policy and our people. And that, I call it the most exciting thing to try and work with our own people first, rather than looking at outside, because being outside and looking at it, I think I'm coming to learn so much from the global scene, but the application of some of this global information and global policies, whether it's in politics or economics, it's important to apply it in our part of the world, like small island states in the Pacific. And when you look at both of this, minus Australia and New, uh, New Zealand, the population of these two, this country is probably just under 10 million or 11 million people live in this part of the world. As far as Marshall Islands, Palau, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Solomon Islands, all this is new way, all is island, but that's our challenge in relation to dealing with climate change and understanding it in our part. Like I said, in the next 100 years or next 50 years, you'll find that we are predicting that a lot of the islands, in our little islands, it becomes the migration or resettlement issues could be some of the biggest one in relation to response or adaptation issues in the Pacific. That is quite remarkable and very, very inspirational. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure talking to you and very enlightening. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Professor Chalapan Kalowin, and our interviewer, Ayushi Kachara, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Please reach out to us if you would like to suggest episode topics, guests, or to be an interviewer on one of our episodes. Our contact information can be found on our website, atmosphericales.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay updated about upcoming episodes and to ask questions to our upcoming guests. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.